It is my pleasure to introduce the panel, um, and especially to introduce um, Anene Ejikimi, who is the uh, moderator for this particular panel. As I mentioned in the intros this morning, it was Anene's idea that we should do this particular conference, and we are eternally grateful for her. Um, she is um, an important scholar and teacher in her own right. She received her PhD from uh, Columbia University, what is known as that school across the street here at Barnard. <laughs> um, and she's gone on to teach history at uh, Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. Um, she is very concerned about social justice issues in her scholarship and um, her life's work as a whole, and that was, is what made her interested in climate change. She also works on gender, and her most recent publication was an essay in an edited volume called Reframing African Women. We're very grateful to Anene for her inspiration for the conference and for moderating this panel. Thank you. Thank you. Our first speaker today is uh, Nancy Bieberman. Uh, Nancy Bieberman heads uh, Women's Housing and Economic Development Corporation, an organization that she also founded, she helped to found. Uh, WHED Co. builds elegant, affordable, and green communities for low-income women and families. Nancy began restoring the Bronx in the late 1980s, and when this led to an organization that developed 23 abandoned buildings into over 200, uh, 700, sorry, affordable apartments. That's a lot of uh, affordable apartments. More recently, Nancy completed the largest affordable green building in the nation, and I think in the world, uh, in the nation anyway, with 128 apartments for families, uh, and it's called Interval Green. Uh, it has a half acre uh, of green roofs, uh, landscaping, public sculpture garden, and it's already garnered a lot of international and national awards. It's garnered a lot of uh, international recognition and it's garnered national awards for its design. Uh, WHED Co. today is a thriving nonprofit company with about 200 full-time and part-time staff members and uh, has an annual budget of over $50 million, so huge, uh, although it began um, as a small enterprise, no doubt. And what I wanted to do today is I want to ask the speakers specific question to talk about their work. I think that many of us want to know, how did you have the inspiration to, to do what you're doing and to talk about uh, some of the mechanics of how they became involved in their particular projects. And then later on, I'm going to, if we have time, ask them about what they plan to do for the future. So I wanted to ask Nancy how, how, how really you had this vision to, to begin to work uh, in building green buildings for low-income uh, families. Because I think many of us still think of green as something for, for the wealthy. Right? If you want to have uh, solar panels and, and do all sorts of green innovations, uh, it's still seen by the public at large, and I think by a lot of uh, experts, as something really for, for, for wealthy people, well-to-do, not low-income people. And, and uh, if you're interested, you can look up later. There's a CNN report about uh, the opening of Intervale Green and, and a woman, a single mother, moving into one of Nancy's apartments. And it's just heartwarming you know, to, to hear her talk about leaving her rat-infested building and going into uh, this gorgeous new building. OK, so Nancy, please tell us how you got started. I'm not going to start with the pictures quite yet, because I do think um, any of these questions are very important. Um, and this PowerPoint is, is not really something that you need to follow. It's intended to be just pictures and impressionistic. Um, and it's intended to help you visualize what I'm talking about. I want to talk a little bit about my introduction to feminism, um, which is in sort of like how you got from there to here question that Anyeni posed. Um, and, and its connection to buildings, which is what I'm going to be talking about, buildings and the environment. In the spring of 1968, 
just across the street here. I was barely out of my teens. I was a student in Barnard, and I was one of over a thousand students like myself who um, occupied Columbia buildings in protest over the university's involvement with the Vietnam War and its plans to build a private gymnasium on public parkland in Harlem, a very well-used park, Morningside Park. I was arrested for criminally trespassing in a Columbia building, and after we were released from jail a few days later, I had you know, I started to kind of like reflect on what I had learned from this, you know, kind of springtime of upheaval 42 years ago. I learned that I was indeed a girl and not a student, that I really didn't have any input into the decisions that were happening at the time while there were masses of us over there, the women. Um, there, Columbia was not co-ed at the time. Barnard was the women's undergraduate college of Columbia University. Um, but the guys were making all the decisions, um, and life, we called the buildings liberated buildings, but I can assure you they were anything but liberated. Um, we women were in charge of things like note-taking, coffee-making, um, uh, answering the phones, mimeographing, anybody remember mimeographing? <laughs> Flyers, and basically keeping our liberated buildings clean. But I have to say that events like this and the opportunities that I have to come back to Barnard and come back to Columbia really remind me um, that you know, my appreciation of the power of buildings and the importance of nature were really forged right here. I want to say one thing on the macro level. Nationally, people should know, just so you know, you don't think this is a history lesson from 40 years ago, buildings consume more than 60% of the electricity that's generated in this country and account for over 35% of the CO2's emissions. So buildings are very important. And I'm going to be talking to you about buildings and getting into my slideshow, but I am going to tell a little bit about, you know, kind of like the how I got from there to here. I began my career working as a legal services lawyer, representing low-income people on the Lower East Side of New York. Uh, I helped them to avoid evictions, deportations, domestic violence, predatory lending. And about a dozen years and at least a thousand lawsuits later, I hung it up. I found that the law was a pretty blunt instrument and that while it was useful in stopping bad things from happening, it was rarely effective in creating anything new. And for me at least, I kind of wanted to be and start working on a larger canvas. And for me, the larger canvas really was about buildings and, and places um, and spaces for people to, to live and, um, and be nursed. That's OK. Um, so now I'm going to start this. Let's see if I can do this right. Like, and again, these are just going to run as a slide, hopefully. So I shifted gears again here at Columbia. If, this, if these pictures don't move in a minute, I'm going to ask for tech support. Um, I, I went to the School of Architecture and Planning, and I began to work in the South Bronx, which looks like it does in this photograph, with a vision of um, building new and affordable housing. I'm not thinking, I'm thinking that they're not moving. Um, I really had no idea what this landscape looked like. What I found was a Bronx that was basically stripped not only of architecture, thank you, 
um, and this was in 1987, by the way, um, but also of memory. When I began working in the Bronx, two of my three kids had been born, and I began seeing life uh, through the eyes of a parent as well. And I understood that without a strong sense of place and pride of place, both of which are really essential to who I am, this building, by the way, is um, Urban Horizons, a former city hospital, which we developed. And I'm going to try to speed myself up a little bit. Um, that, that this sense of pride of place was really essential to healthy families, for women and families. You know, they needed this beauty um, in order to envision um, a future of possibility as well as a future of opportunity for success. So for me, envisioning what it was like, you know, what pride of place would look like was critically important in community development. The, basic, the, the buildings that were standing in the Bronx then, um, even the abandoned ones were sort of eerily beautiful. And their preservation became my mission and I focused on restoring, um, I'm gonna stop right here if I can, um, restoring one full city block. Um, there we go, I'm not that bad. Um, one full city block that had been an abandoned city hospital, um, abandoned in the mid-1970s during New York City's fiscal crisis. And even then, um, even in its abandoned state, it was, it was sort of eerily elegant. We salvaged this building, and it, you know, in terms of sort of process and how do you make things get from there to here, um, this was forged out of a partnership between a two-woman organization, as in me and one other woman and a group of neighborhood parents who had been petitioning to get a new public school built. And I have to say, we literally ran into each other in the dirt um, inside of the razor-wired and chain-lick fence that surrounded that abandoned hospital. And within a couple of years, we became a formidable team of women we learned a lot from each other, and frankly, that our commonalities as women um, and as parents transcended many other differences that we had, and that true partnerships came only when each of us realized that without each other, we would never succeed. So we knew that we were essential to each other's collective success. Um, when I started working in this building, I learned about environmental toxins. That was actually my first exposure. I literally scooped up, unknowingly, a handful of asbestos. And this building, this hospital that we were about to restore, began with an, a million dollars worth of asbestos removal. And I realized at the time that this asbestos had been slowly, you know, in the air and poisoning the neighborhood for 20 years. So at that moment, I would say that my original goals of creating a complex of beautiful homes and childcare and a fitness center and a school and a commercial kitchen um, were deeply connected to things like health and education and opportunity. But this was 1996 by the time this building sort of like got into gear and green building was not even in its infancy. So less than 10 years later, um, you know, really 2005, green building and sustainable buildings were already embedded into national discourse and I began to work on another development, and let's see if I can get there. Um, um, okay. Am I gonna make this go? And 
this was a development that um, you know began, as you can see, um, on a piece of literally toxic land in the Bronx, um, contaminated by oil and you know other environmental toxins, too numerous to mention. Again, over a million dollars in remediation of these uh, toxins, excavating you know probably a dozen feet of uh, dirty dirt. I began to learn. I came to learn the difference between dirty dirt and clean dirt. Um, and uh, there were, you know, I would say 21,000 tons, over 14,000 cubic yards of contaminated soil, again, that had been sitting there, which we dug out. And today, you know, this site, where you see these kids breaking ground, is home to um, 150 families, low-income families, and young people who have aged out of the city's foster care system. The building called Interville Green is indeed a beautiful building, and um, it's green in critical ways. It's green in that it's healthy. Um, this is a picture of the green roof. Green roof, excuse me. Um, it's a healthy building. It's built with sustainable materials. So, the, you know, again, materials. Um, it's energy saving. Um, it's beautiful. And we incorporate landscaping, um, architecture, and art to message ways in which sustainability can be incorporated into daily living. Uh, recycled art, this work is a, is a sculpture by Bronx, uh, a woman sculptor who um, obviously uses recycled materials into you know, creating forms that are intended to convey message of, in this case, new growth and structural transformation. We're doing landscaping on the roof. We're gonna be doing an urban farming project this summer. And you know that, that car that you saw in the beginning and the, the sludge, this photo is exactly um, you know, sitting on the site of, of where that uh, you know, toxic dump site was. So the green roofs, what do green roofs do? They create, our green roofs have created a half an acre of uh, space where the, our urban farming project is going to begin this summer. The building is fully occupied. We've just finished renting up about three months ago. And green roofs do a number of things. They reduce storm water runoff. So when there's a massive rain, um, instead of the water just sort of like running off into the sewer system, and in New York's case, you know, sewer systems sort of back up um, and cause pollution, the rain should not flood sewers. If you have green roofs, or frankly any green um, parkland or whatever, you know, soil retains that water. Green roofs also help in what's called the urban heat island effect. Does anybody know what that is? In other words, you know, why are cities hotter? Um, and green roofs also do uh, reduce CO2 emissions. So the last uh, uh, building that I'm working on now um, is in the pre-development. These are some things that have sort of like happened, you know, in and around the community as a consequence of uh, of, the, of, of Interville Green being built. You know, people in the neighborhood are getting interested in maintaining uh, the landscaping that's there. It's both public landscaping as well as landscaping for the residents, and also in creating art um, in, in the stairwells and in other places. Mm? Oh. Okay, so this is the last uh, building that we're doing. The, it's called the House That Jazz Built. Um, that's what it'll look like when it's done. Um, and there will be a hydroponic roof garden. The last few photos are just images of 
you know, where, you know, what, what kids are doing at Urban Horizons now, the first building, the old hospital building, they are really taking what they're learning about green and incorporating it into their daily lives. Um, this is what's called the green triangle, and I am going to save that for last because it's an answer to the question of what next. So I'll leave it right there. Thank you so much, Nancy. Thank you. Uh, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Lele Skandar Kamel. Dr. Skandar has been working in an environmental and sustainable development for more than 25 years. Leila has founded several NGOs, has authored numerous papers, and served as a consultant to Egyptian and international aid organizations. A graduate of Teachers College right here at Columbia, so she's a uh, you know she's returning to her old stomping grounds. Uh, Leila has established a wide variety of programs aimed at improving the lives of the disenfranchised, from creating a rug weaving center for girls to creating a project to employ young men to earn a livelihood from recycling waste. Um, Layla is best known for her work with uh, Zabaline, right. right, or Garbage Collectors in Cairo. This is the work that uh, some of you will may be familiar with, having seen it, uh, for example, on CNN. Uh, Layla began working with Garbage Collectors in 1982. Uh, and I'm going to ask Layla to talk about how she got into this work, because I think many of us were not thinking about garbage collecting and recycling specifically in the early 1980s. I think uh, that's, that's an interesting question. And I think she'll be talking about pigs later on too, maybe. Yes, <laughs> but because of the time limit, I'm just going to tell you very quickly. I had been teaching at Los Altos High School in the Bay Area with uh, very fast-paced, bright kids. And we were taught, I was trained, to design and implement an individualized instruction program for fast-paced, brilliant kids. They were all going to Stanford and UCLA and all the rest of it. Uh, and then I reverse immigrated to Egypt after I'd done that for five years. I had immigrated first and then reverse. And one day someone said, we need volunteers to teach some kids how to read and write Arabic. I thought, ah, nothing to it. And there I met, first I discovered how hard it was to teach my own native language and then I, um, found myself, instead of doing this for one year as a volunteer, doing it for 29. Uh, but it was there that I discovered what I'd learned at Los Altos High School could be done with children who had to go out on the garbage route every day. They were not privileged kids, but all of the tricks that they had taught me at Los Altos High School were perfect for that setting. So then, as time went on, I learned about what their parents were doing, what the mothers were doing, the recycling. And I'd like to tie that into what uh, our keynote speaker was talking about today, this uh, insidious clean development mechanism and carbon trading. I'll, I'll get to that. But when I first started out, I was just a literacy instructor with a few kids who needed a new model of learning. And now it has turned into a global battle for our rights to recycle. This is what our neighborhood looks like. In fact, five neighborhoods like these handle half of garbage, uh, the garbage that Cairo generates, 14,000 tons per day, of which half is handled by what they call garbage collectors, Zabalin, they're recyclers, actually. And it comes to our neighborhood looking like this, and it always starts with the women. Even in South Africa, India, wherever you go, it starts with the women. They either collect it, in Cairo they don't, because it's not culturally acceptable for them to go out, but in India they do. And if they don't collect it, someone else collects it. In Cairo, this is who does it, a man. Yet, 
What they all do, which is something we in the North really need to listen to very carefully, is that they are harvesting materials. It's never called trash. It's always respected. And there's always an economic motive, a market-based mechanism, as if the poor and the people in the South don't understand markets. It's always that which drives them to recover and harvest. So please stop calling it trash. Learn from us. This has to be respected and harvested. Why? Because what do you guys do with it? Well, you burn and bury it. Unthinkable in the South. Unthinkable. So after the women first sort the worst part of it, when it's mixed with organic, with food, then the men take over, and that's the gendered aspect of the role distribution, and then they go into the non-organics. Um, up till H1N1 broke out, they used to digest, the pigs used to digest the organic fraction, so we were used to handling the organic part of it by giving it to pigs. And again, that was the women's domain. And they saved the money sold from pigs for big expenditures. What? Housing improvements and marrying kids. And educating girls. So when the Mexicans called it swine flu, our Egyptian government, because they were very, very concerned about our health, decided to eradicate 350,000 pigs, they called them, in three months. No more pigs in Egypt. So half of our income lost. It's all very well for us to talk about climate change, but for women in the South, it's not just about climate change. Recycling is our life. And um, how do we come together with other global groups who talk at Copenhagen on climate uh, issues? We frame the discussion not around the environment so much, although it is really an environmental one, but around economic justice and recycling, because commercial interests in the North come over to our large cities, every one of them, Delhi, Manila, Cairo, you name it. There's a big commercial operator from the north, your mischief travels far, that uh, attempts to tell our policymakers, this is all bad what these people are doing. Look how dirty it is. We're gonna have you bury it. So when we go to Copenhagen, we present data on how many jobs this has created, how many kids it has kept off of the streets, how many women it has allowed to open homes and educate girls, and how, many, how much food it's put on the table, and how much technical vocational skills it has taught the kids, and how much it has saved the environment. But look at the insidious plan from the north that hits us. I mean, it's not enough to have the pig sculled, but here is what they do. They claim that because they bury this rich compost, the north, you guys, you bury it in your landfills, and because you do that, you have the technology to collect the methane gas and send it off in pipes to some place that will use it and therefore reduce global warming. But what you don't say in that equation is that by burying this, you deprive the earth of a very important material, organic fertilizer, soil conditioner, and even more importantly, you don't tell the whole world that because you have buried all this plastic polyethylene, PET, you're gonna have to withdraw it from the market of recycling, so you have made the earth lose a lot of materials which trace their origins to fossil fuels, this is oil. And then there's another thing you don't tell, and that is you're gonna have to go back to the bottom of the earth and draw up some more oil 
to produce more PET bottles because we've all gotten used to drinking in a PET bottle. So we talk about the, the villainy of claiming carbon credits by people who landfill their trash. And we talk about the lack of knowledge and lack of awareness in the North about how valuable these things are because we in the South have learned how to harvest them and the people who have taught, taught us, they taught me, did not graduate from Columbia. They were illiterate, unskilled, poor, and from a southern country. But boy, did they know about the environment. The value chain is amazing. And I guess that's what made me stay for 28 years. If it had been just Arabic literacy, I would have left after the first batch had mastered it. But it is the industry that up till today just is mind-boggling, not just for me. We've now formed a global network of sister-like organizations all over the South. We've all come to the same conclusion that these people need to be respected and supported. Sometimes we talk about it from the environmental justice and livelihoods, the sustainable incomes approach, the um, uh, community development um, strategy, or from uh, plain old feminism and climate change. But they recover everything, and then they sort, and then they process, and they do some manufacturing, and they are able to sort plastic, for instance, by color and by type into 24 different types without a sensor, by smelling and feeling. That's technology. So people claim that we hate high-tech methods. Oh, you people like to be backward because you ain't got the know-how. Well, if we just went on the web and brought the know-how, we would be destroying an incredible trade and a know-how that has for years developed markets. And this is one thing I'd like to stress over and over again. The entire value chain is built based on markets and on prices of materials. So one week, this person might decide to sell his plastic before washing. Why? Because he's watching markets. Another week, he'll decide to wash and then granulate. Why? Because the people in China have a huge demand for it that week. But next week, he watches markets and so on. I won't bore you too much, but the value chain says that for every ton of materials, please don't ever call it trash, generates seven jobs for every ton recovered. How many are recovered? Only half of the materials the city generates. Why? Because these families didn't have the voice to stop another terrible plan which hit our city in 2003 when our government uh, decided to neglect the data we had presented. We had uh, counted how many SMEs, small and medium enterprises, had sprung up in one neighborhood as a sample. And it showed that they were growing economic growth at a rate of 40% per year and uh, investing $50 million. And we showed them that it could be done in a rag recycling enterprise clean without any soiled food contaminating. So women could do it in a clean manner. They were exporting to New York. We have two Habashi sisters here who sell uh, in their big bazaar. I don't know who hosts them every year, but they are able to generate one third of the revenue. And these girls all started out on a donkey pulled cart many years ago and are now uh, running a business. So what happened in 2003 that these people did not have a voice to stop? Multinationals coming in to 
horror of horrors, can you believe what they decided to do? They did what the climatologists say should not be done. Uh, they began to landfill it. So our struggle today is to explain to the climate change people that women at the vanguard of this are providing for families, educating their girls, and that the environment will suffer because you're gonna to have to extract more oil to produce more plastic, and you're gonna withdraw very important elements from the materials flow chain. Uh, instead of harvesting, we're burying it. I guess my time is up, so yes. I will stop. <laughs> okay, thank you. This environmental justice organization created to improve environmental health and quality of life in communities uh, of color. In 1993, we asked one, a $1.1 million settlement against the city of New York. Yay! <laughs> in a lawsuit uh, over the North River sewage uh, treatment plant. Ms. Shepard has published several articles and issues of, of community empowerment proposal for justice and Fordham Environmental Law Journal. Peggy has won numerous awards, uh, too many to list all here, but I'll, I'll mention a couple of them. In 2003, she won the 10th Annual Heinz Award for the Environment. She's also received uh, the National Organization for Women, uh, uh, Woman, uh, Woman of the Year Award, I believe that was, and the Gay and Lesbian Independent Democrats, National Wildlife Magazine. They've also awarded her uh, awards. And Peggy is going to talk to us about how she began her work with um, the Harlem community uh, in particular. Okay. Good afternoon, everyone. Well, I'm going to tell you quickly how I got started a few blocks north of here. Uh, I was running as a Democratic district leader back in 1988, and community residents said to me, what are you going to do to help us get jobs at a sewage treatment plant that was about to start operating? So I thought it was really about jobs, and I started uh, working to uh, with the city to get people hired, and we actually did that. And six months later, the plant began operating, spewing odors and emissions that made people sick. Everybody along Riverside Drive was complaining. Kids who had asthma were having additional asthma attacks, and so we started an eight-year organizing campaign to get Mayor Koch to fix the North River plant. Along the way, I began to realize, and I should say, I came to New York as a, as a journalist and a magazine editor. I worked uh, for Red Book and Essence magazines and um, really had a, a strong uh, uh, publishing career going. But I began to use my writing skills in political campaigns and was asked to run uh, as a Democratic district leader after the Jesse Jackson campaign where I ran the public relations. And so, I began working and organizing in Harlem as a Democratic district leader, and so started working on the North River plant. Quickly understood that there were so many issues of environmental quality in this community that were going unaddressed. I realized that we were home to over one-third of the city's diesel bus fleet, and so we sued the Metropolitan Transit Authority for operating another bus depot in uptown neighborhoods. 
To make a long story short, after eight years of organizing, we got a million dollar settlement of our lawsuit against the city for operating the North River plant, which is up the street at um, 138th, between 138th and 145th in the Hudson River. You probably pass it on the West Side Highway all the time. There's a state park now on top of it. And so we got a settlement because the city was not operating that plant in a healthy and safe way. As a result, we understood that we needed to institutionalize a strong advocacy voice in an underserved community. I began working with hundreds of grassroots groups around this country in what was then called the environmental justice movement. We all came together in 1991 to hammer out 17 principles of environmental justice and to talk about our relationship to Mother Earth and to environmental decision-making and to a range of issues that affect all of our lives. As a result, over the last 20 years, we act for environmental justice, uh, which has been located up on 125th Street near the Apollo for the last 15 or so years. We have uh, worked within the national movement to build a strong, unified voice around environmental quality. Environmental justice is what we have been trying to achieve over the years because we know that environmental racism has meant the intentional targeting of pollution in underserved and low-income communities around this country. Whether you're African-American, Latino, indigenous, living on tribal lands, Asian-Americans, we have all been disproportionately impacted by pollution, which has led to glaring health disparities. So over the years, we have worked on a range of newer issues, and one of those more emerging issues has been climate change. So we have reached out to develop an environmental justice leadership forum on climate change. We now have over 36 organizations nationally that have come together to unify a voice, especially to uh, brief Congress on issues of climate justice. And the wonderful talk we heard this morning uh, from Joan, just a wonderful talk. And you used humor in such a way um, that I have not been able to, and I've really got to take a lesson. <laughs> because when you're in rooms which, uh, with mostly men, mostly men, today you go into a room about environmental policy, and I'm often one of two women in the entire room. And so when you get to the debate in Congress around these issues, it is predominantly men. There is no public health um, discussion in the climate uh, debate. It's all been cap and trade. There's a strong carbon tax group of people um, that, uh, and that includes many scientists and economists, by the way, um, who are trying to, to make their voices heard. And of course, we're not sure now whether um, in fact, there will be climate legislation uh, this year um, because of all of the other issues uh, with the stalled Congress. So I, I won't go into um, our 10 principles of, of uh, climate justice. I know we don't have time for that. Um, but I would be happy to, um, to, to give this to the center so that they can put it up on their uh, website. And it is available on WEAC's website, which is www.weac.org. 
but I'd be happy to, to talk a little um, as we go along today uh, about the principles of climate justice. So thank you very much. Okay, our last speaker on this panel is Winona LaDuke, who I think needs little introduction to many of you here, I think, but I will introduce her nevertheless. Uh, Winona LaDuke, of course, is a two-time vice presidential candidate for the Green Party, uh, and she's founder of the White Earth Land Recovery Project, one of the largest reservation-based nonprofit organizations in the country. Winona has been particularly concerned with ensuring that sustainable development and conservation are culturally sensitive. Winona and the White Land Recovery Project have won many awards, including the 2003 International Slow Food Award for Biodiversity, uh, which recognizes the organization's work to protect wild rice from patenting and genetic engineering. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm from the White Earth Reservation in northern Minnesota. Uh, any idea where that is? No, prior. Minnesota? Good, good. North, northwestern Minnesota, there's uh, seven Ojibwe reservations, or Anishinaabe, and there's uh, uh, 19 in the U.S. And that's where I work and I live, and uh, I thought I was coming to a place with no snow until yesterday. <laughs> I was really laughing. I said, that's my luck. Oh, look at I hit that already. Hey, how's this work? I only did this like twice in my whole life. I just wanted to show you pictures, because otherwise I just talk about it. Okay, okay. So this is, um, I'm just going to talk a little bit about the impacts. I'm not going to talk that much about it, but our strategies in addressing climate change issues in our, in our community is what I'm interested in. Uh, this is uh, my new cool poster. That's pretty cool. Huh? This, uh, this uh, old chief named Degani uh, uh, Benes, that's his name, and uh, I adapted this piece of art. Uh, impacts in native communities are pretty significant. We're largely Pacific Rim, the Arctic area, the Southwest. You probably don't need a long lecture on it. That's the village of Kivalina falling into the water, um, as you know. Um, that's what is going on in our communities. Um, this is the projected impacts, and if you, I don't know if you've seen this, this is called the more, more, more well, we call it the death maps of uh, impact, and um, I don't really have a reservation map, but what you should know is most of the red areas that are in the Great Plains are reservation areas uh, that are heavily impacted, and the reason they're impacted is not only because of uh, extreme weather, uh, but also because of um, the fact that they're remote, nobody has a telephone, nobody has a road, there's no emergency service. You know, I mean, that your streets are plowed is a miracle to me. I was, I was unbelievable, you know, that would never be plowed for a long time in our community. Um, so we're good winter drivers. Uh, what our strategies are is first, you gotta keep fighting the bad guys. So this is the most evil project on the face of the, of the earth right now, the Tar Sands Project, basically, uh, mining an area about the size of, uh, of, the, of Lake Superior, Florida, to, to stick it in our gas tanks. Uh, single largest CO2 emitting um, region and uh, gonna be devastating. You know, so you could talk about climate change, but what you gotta do is, is continue to, to battle the bad, you know, in this. And so this is one of the things we're battling is this tar sands uh, set of projects, heavily impacted all indigenous communities, uh, Fort Chipewyan, uh, all, all Ojibwe communities are all uh, Cree and Dene communities in the northern Canada that are impacted by this. Um, this is our battling. Um, this is a couple power plants. We uh, pretty much defeated this last year. Do we get a... <laughs> that was uh, tough, you know. And I just gotta say, uh, you know, this is coal. Uh, we have a lot of coal in our communities. Uh, four of the 10 largest coal strip mines of the country are on Indian reservations. One of them just closed down after 40 darn years, so black, uh, the Black Mesa 
uh, that we fought for many years. They finally closed that one down, but that was after they, we also had the power plant closed down uh, on account of uh, uh, California wouldn't take, uh, power was too dirty from the Mojave generating station, yeah? Um, and so there's a strategy that was developed out of that called the just transition strategy, which is if you have a community like Navajo Nation that has been totally impacted by coal strip mines, you got workers in the mine, and then the mine goes and they, the power plant had also stolen their water, they slurried it uh, from the Navajo Reservation to Mojave Generating over in Nevada, 233 miles, pristine water contaminating. Then um, what the Navajo Nation did is they sued um, and they, they said, we want uh, compensation and we want a tr just transition strategy. And so instead of uh, giving uh, the California Public Utilities Commission holds in escrow uh, the money from, uh, that would have been from the carbon credits and all the pollution credits hold there, and then they're looking to use that to develop a renewable strategy that would replace the jobs that were originally associated with that, because LA is still sucking power. Um, a couple other ones, this is Desert Rock down at the bottom. That one just got a ruling by the EPA looking pretty good on the defeat of it, not dead though. You know, so I can't claim, we can't claim full victory on that one. But this one here is a big stone too, about a 10 year battle, uh, 10, 12 year battle. A coal plant over in uh, South Dakota, uh, right next to Sisseton Reservation in South Dakota. And uh, you know, windiest regime in the darn country. You know, uh, North Dakota, South Dakota, no excuse for coal. Um, whatsoever, you know, and they had uh, proposed this plant for many years, and there was Big Stone too. Uh, first it was 1,200 megawatts, and then investors started to fall off, uh, and then down to 500 megawatts, you know, and, and uh, in, in, in the work, um, Minnesota didn't really, uh, they couldn't count the power as green, so they're having, you know, they had the renewable energy portfolio in Minnesota, and so they weren't so, the uh, utilities that would have bought were not so interested, because this was not meeting their green portfolio, yeah? Are you guys all following me pretty good? I'm, I'm talking fast because I, I don't want to take too much of the time. And so we kept battling them on a lot of levels, um, you know, largely um, battled by environmental groups and investors. And then uh, we brought in our native community because we'd never been consulted, you know, and so a lot of my work, I spent a lot of time fighting these things, you know, most of my adult life I, I did. And uh, we brought the tribes, tribal communities in, and, and I live just north of this town, Fergus Falls, Minnesota. And it's, um, they never talked to native people, but they had this big utility that was investor owned in that town. And they never could, you know, so we brought, a, we went to town there, the native community went in there a few times and said, you need to ask us because not only is the power plant right next to us using our water, but you never even ask. We like to have wind instead. So this is, a, uh, I don't, uh, I keep going on about it, but this is, we went to the, the, uh, two years ago, went to the shareholders meeting in Fergus Falls. It's a little redneck town. Let's just get real. And we, we go in there, and they're all, uh, they say that protesters are coming, so they beef up all the security, right? And you, you guys know how to protest out here in New York. But this is our protesters. And there's this guy dressed as a, this is a guy dressed as a giant otter, as you see that? <laughs> For Otter Tail Power Company. And that's my son in the middle, who's the nine-year-old, and he's got the don't poison us thing. You know? And they were like so freaked out. They had all this security and everything. I was like, you guys gotta chill out, you know? So uh, anyway, we did, uh, they did close that plant down, but it was a conversation similar to the economic conversation. I said, they're, they're all proud. They said, we've been working on this for 12 years. 
I said, that's your problem. That was before all the climate change and carbon legislation and impacts started to be known. You have a 12-year-old plan that's outdated, you know? And then finally, it, it, that ends. Okay, so this is the just transition strategy. I talked a little bit about uh, the idea of, uh, of, this is for desert rock uh, plant, saying that instead of the bad energy, you know, you got plenty of wind and solar down here. Let us uh, move towards this. And so this is a report you can, you know, find online. I also have this one I just released this last week uh, for our website, Honor the Earth. And you can download this report, which is, in, it a lot of these, these uh, graphics are out of here. Um, and then uh, last thing, which of course I'm deeply concerned about is Obama and, uh, you know, just the, the pro-nuclear uh, proposals that are out there uh, as, as a solution to climate change. And that is not a solution to climate change. The solution is efficiency, reduction of your, you know, really inefficient economy. You know, you're about, they're saying almost two-thirds of the power between point of use and point of production and point of use is wasted. The general statistic is a third, but if you look all the way through it, it's almost two-thirds of the power. Because the market, in, the market itself is set up to, uh, the profit is made in selling more, not in being efficient. And so there's never been any uh, reason, you know, to, to make it more efficient. It's set up entirely the opposite. And so, you know, the solution is that, and then the solution is renewables and local power. That is the other thing. And retooling your system so that you're not, uh, for instance, transporting food 1,500 miles from point of origin to point of consumption, you know. So this here, uh, doing a lot of work. Um, they're now proposing a uranium mine on the north side of the Grand Canyon. <laughs> um, you know, it's just, they, it is relentless. I've spent a lot of my life fighting uranium mining, and uh, we, nuclear power plants closed down. You know, 30 years, no new licensing, and now we're looking at you know, them trying to fast-track licensing, and, and people need to really oppose that because there's a reason we don't have new nuclear power plants. You know, not only is it health, and in, you know, it's health, it's the environment, but it's also that they are a ridiculous expenditure of money for the amount of power you get. You know, I mean, Helen Caldicott used to say, there's a lot better way to boil water, you know, which is what they're doing. You know, just boil water a different way, don't do that. All right, so this is our plan. Uh, we just held this conference on climate change and the Mystic Lake Accord is what was passed there. This is Henrietta Mann talking at it, which was uh, signed by a lot of tribal representatives that come from across the country uh, to in, prior to uh, the meetings in, in Copenhagen. Oh, this is the energy waste thing. I, I put this up here so you could see how smart I am, see? <laughs> I, I show this at uh, the, what's it called, a big uh, lawyers, the, the National Federal Bar Association last year, and I was like, ha, see, you guys are lawyers. I'm an economist, look at that, ha. <laughs> anyway, it just shows you, uh, if you go through it, you might need a, you know, like glasses a little closer, but it just shows you that how much is wasted by the time it gets from point of uh, production to point of use. You know, and that is uh, in here, and you can download this. Okay, our solutions are uh, solarizing our communities um, and local energy. Um, in my own reservation, what we did is we, uh, is we uh, did an energy plan for our reservation and come up with the fact that uh, on our reservation, we realized we spent about a quarter of our money on energy, and we don't own any dinosaurs. And a lot of that could be replaced by local power and efficiency, right? So first we start with putting on these solar heating panels. I don't actually have one of them shown here. Reduces your winter heating bill, south side of the wall. Uh, reduces your winter heating bill by 20%, 30%, yeah? 
And then we uh, work to uh, get more efficient light bulbs and like that. And then this is uh, my grandson here, this little guy in the middle. We're putting up our first wind turbine um, on our reservation, our first big one or medium size. That's a 75 kilowatt lowland turbine. Had a lot of choices and I know similar in other countries, uh, we had to make appropriate technology cho choices. I didn't want a turbine that had to be serviced by someone from Denmark. You know what I'm saying? That I have to import a crane from big city. You know, so this is a medium size. We have a good size wind up here in our reservation. And, and so we're putting that up. I don't have the nacelle, which is the head up. It's going up in April, although I am taking wagers. Just to let you know, a lot of people are betting that we won't get it up. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to take man money pretty soon on that. The other thing about putting up a wind turbine is you get to say, uh, we're going to have an erection. <laughs> That's going to be happening. In, end of April, early May, we'll have a big erection on wedding. Uh, this here is, uh, you know, uh, it's called ledger art. This is supposed to be at the end, but I only got a couple more slides. Ledger art. I don't know if you've ever seen it. They got a bunch of it down here at the museum. It historically depicts, it depicts historically important events in our communities. And so I commissioned Michael Horse to do a ledger art piece on the significance of us putting up our wind turbine on our reservation. And uh, you can see, uh, these are actually three of these are my horses. Uh, I got Lucky, Nagani, and uh, Noden here, or, or uh, Minshu here. And then I have, um, uh, this is my son here, just to show you. And this is uh, my friend, I repatriated a guy from the military. That was really smart of me. Because uh, it turns out if you spend 26 years in the military and you blow up a lot of stuff, you have an engineering degree. <laughs> And so guys who take down dams in Panama, other places, you know, in the military for special forces, turns out they have engineering degree, Indian vets. I don't know if you, any of you guys have any idea how high enlistment is in our community. I said, uh, you could blow stuff up. Can you, can you build anything? <laughs> and so uh, he's putting up my wind turbine. That's him, and that's our ceremony for our wind turbine. Um, uh, with our four horses, it's a horse ceremony. And just to show you who financed our wind turbine, that's what's kind of cool about this. If you look, uh, Midewakanton, Dakota communities, the flag over here on the far left, they have a big casino. And uh, that's where we got the money for our turbine, is from a big casino. Second flag up there is the Venezuelan government, Sitco Petroleum, finance our wind turbine. That's cool, huh? And then uh, our tribe over there, and then the last flag there is an Aboriginal flag from Australia, which I just put in there because I really like their flag, and it's a kind of a pan-Indigenous flag. It means less uranium. And then our other strategy is local food. And I just want to say, uh, you know, briefly about this, our local food. Our plan is in this is that uh, turns out a lot of our really old varieties, that's my friend Ivan uh, with a Lakota squash, that's what that's called. These other varieties, um, a lot of them are pre-industrial. They were not grown on the Green Revolution, you know, and they were never monocropped. And so they uh, didn't use fertilizers and didn't use irrigation. And so uh, we, they, they're tougher, you know what I mean? And so we grow this corn out. That corn in the middle is a Bear Island flint. It's about up to your waist in size, but it has really big ears. And it's about that high because it's wind shear resistant, you know? So I'm telling you this because those non-hybrid, pre-industrial, non-patented crops are the ones you want in the time of climate change because they're developed for microclimates and they're more resilient. So that's what we're growing out um, in our community. The other thing is, is that they're a lot higher in antioxidants. 
like Potawatomi lima beans, low in fat, high in carbohydrates, protein, vitamin B, 24 grams of fiber per serving, and 21 times the antioxidants found in mar market beans. Why'd I tell you that? Because, you know, these old ones, these old ones are much more nutritionally uh, significant and uh, really important in this time with our diabetes and everything. Um, this is uh, our farm to school program on our reservation. I don't know if you know what those are, but it means that instead of serving so much USDA stamped food, we have a lot more local food. And so I got 60 producers on my reservation that uh, get this food and uh, that's our wild rice. She asked me about it. And this here, our battle is to keep it from getting patented or genetically engineered. It grows on our lakes and rivers and they, we go out harvest it, and uh, that's us down in the bottom right is us harvesting it, two sticks in a canoe, and a pole, push your way through, bring it in, and, you, and right there, these guys bring it in, and you parch it, and then uh, this is a parching it here. And then you have wild rice, and if you're interested in that, we're called Native Harvest. We sell it nationally, internationally. But uh, here, I just want to point out to you, average age of a ricer on white earth is about 24. Reason I tell you that is because that's the most high-risk category of, of native, is young men, you know, up to 24, 25. An average age of a ricer is is about that. So that's what we do: is keep our our young people like that. And I think that that's it. Oh no, sugar bush. That's last thing here. And this is what else we do: maple syruping. But we're old school. We haul it by hand. This is our team here hauling. And that there guy down there in the far right is the guy who was pictured with the otter. Uh, before, that's my, my youngest son, he's uh, now 10, but he's uh, stealing my profits <laughs> out of the tree. Um, that's it, that's, so, uh, that's our plan in our community, thank you. Okay, I, I want to open it up so that you guys can you know, ask each other uh, questions. Um, does anyone want to have a question for somebody? One thing which resonated, which we experience every day, is this fight about between high-tech and what they call low-tech, or appropriate technology. Uh, I'm impressed that you are trying to fight that here in the land of high-tech. But for us, it poses a big problem because it's always the commercial interests of the North coming in, either through globalized markets or through... Uh, a message that says we're trying to educate you ignorant, illiterate southerners to the better ways. So I don't know if we can do something together globally um, to put together a message that what has high tech done for us? Yes, a lot of good things, but is there not another way of looking at technology? I, 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 uh, it's a really interesting set of questions because it is true we're really colonized I mean, the U.S. always says that, you know, bigger, the economy of scale argument, right? And then that there's always going to be new technology, and we live in this fantasy that technology will save us, essentially, you know? And so what we did in our community, though, and it is, it is a battle because in our own internal colonialism in our community in itself, you got, you know, uh, a tribal government that quite often believes that something big is going to come and, and make things and save us. You know, probably a lot like your governments there, and then the local people are not so like that. In our case, um, our scaling was based on um, our cultural values. 
you know, I, we, in, our, in our community, a lot of people are pretty um, traditional in some ways. The, the segment of the community I work with, and they don't like the mechanization. Like with our wild rice, you can only process it certain ways. And you can't, if you gas parch it, use petroleum, it, it's not considered to be as of high quality. And so you have a cultural bias against doing it incorrectly already that is, has to do with this quality over, over quantity and a set of choices. So we kind of use that. The other thing is, is that we realize that our people, um, you know, we have high rate of unemployment, um, similar, you know, to other communities. Um, and, and jobs that would be created in a more, uh, in, you know, a different scale of wind would be uh, more removed from us. And so with this scale, we are able to uh, have our own people uh, take care of it, and it has less uh, maintenance. Um, uh, it re requires less dependence on outside sources. So it's a, it's a set of choices that we try to make, and it's a battle. You know? But that's why they call it appropriate technology. And it's really, really important to ensure that we use that term because it is scale and culturally appropriate. And, and we need to demand that the, that the technological choices we have are uh, that, because it has huge social impact, huge social, political, economic, environmental impact if it's not. Nancy, you look like you have a question or comment. Oh, well, it's actually a comment because I was, you know, kind of listening to, you know, what you're doing in a rural, you know, context and sort of thinking about, you know, sort of the, the difficulties and the complexities of, of, of frankly, doing any work. Um, you know, you know when when the population size is so great, and where people are at such an enormous distance from you know the sources of food, um, for example. But yet, you know the you know the the solutions you know to some of the problems you know whether it's you know generating you know power from wind or you know in the cases of buildings in a city, you can you know it is possible, and you know people are learning that you know, buildings can be what's called retrofitted or you know, redesigned so that they are, are more efficient. And you know, in a place like New York, which I think is true of like many metropolitan areas, you know, buildings account for you know, probably 80% of the CO2 emissions. You know, it's not automobiles, it's our buildings you know, in, in cities. And you know, there is here, I think you know, some level of public policy awareness you know, by this you know, city government, which I you know, have issues with, you know, on in many other areas, but, you know, they, there is, um, you know, there is agreement, I think, about, you know, what's necessary to do, you know, which is to say, you know, 80% of the buildings that stand today in New York City are going to still be here in 2030. So, you know, if that's a fact, and it is a fact, um, you know, what do we do? You know, what do we do? And, you know, how do, you know, how can people in smaller neighborhoods, you know, I had a picture up there of what I call the green zone, but it's a little area of the Bronx that has 215,000 people in it. So, you know, it's like, you know, it's a little, you know, for New York, it's like a little area, you know, but I mean, I'm, you know, I'm sort of like kind of struck between the urban and rural all the time. Um, but, you know, it, it, it presents both challenges and opportunities, you know, you know, the opportunity is you can affect a lot of people um, by greening these buildings. You can, and you have enormous impact in a large space, you know, but in a small, concentrated way. So for me, what you're raising is just sort of like the, you know, kind of like the urban, you know, density issues um, and the rural, 
you know, less dense issues. I'm going to open it to the floor in a minute, but I just wanted to add to what Nancy was saying. I was just thinking as you were talking about uh, the fact that buildings, in fact, probably generate more um, CO2 emissions, or at least in, in terms of uh, co contribute more to climate change. Uh, when I think, I think many of us, we think cars, right? We all just think of cars, the images we see. But um, the, the, while it may be that, in fact, not just buildings are, uh, are the things we need to focus on, but commercial agriculture. Right, commercial agriculture. I think some of you will see, will have seen those images of the fork, right, and then the fork and the car, and saying, you know, which do you think does more to damage the climate? And uh, most of us are thinking car, but uh, the fork. So commercial agriculture is. Um, uh, so, so for me, I think the thing that, that, that it's the, the need to to educate ourselves, right, to, and to see connections where they may not always seem so obvious. But uh, if commercial agriculture, so not just sort of the patenting, which is you know disastrous, right. But uh, the, the commercial, commercial agriculture, I think, is just interesting. I just wanted to throw that in there. Um, I don't know if any of the uh, panelists want to, to speak to that, or you know, we want to take questions from the from the floor. I, w I was interested, Dr. Kamel, in in um, you know, in the states, I think we're trained that so many plastics that are used um, mm -hmm. to cover products are so degraded that they cannot be recycled usefully. And so I was fascinated to see all of these images of all sorts of different plastics. And I wonder how you address that. There are two markets in the South. One market that's informal sector, small and medium enterprise, where you have absolutely no control over what kind of stuff people produce. But it's not all hazardous. So some uh, items are heels for ladies' shoes, hangers for clothes, um, Rub stamps for government offices, and God knows we have we use those a lot. But uh, there are others that are hazardous. I hand it to you, but it's the third world or first world. I don't know what you call it, but there's another market that will produce according to international standards. But the problem is that in your markets, uh, the differentiation of tracks where a product might go has become so limited because your business size is so big and your economies of scale miss is making you lose out on so many tracks that products can take. It's ironic because at the same time, you are the people who are innovating new products from plastics. People make fences, uh, roofs, all sorts of things that we can't produce in the South. So it, it's a funny system here. You have the know-how to produce appropriate technologies, but you're going for the large, and it's in spite of the fact that you have a very high unemployment rate. And yet your universities are teaching kids, economists, to measure your well-being by other mythical measures like uh, gross domestic product and all the rest of it. So for me, I, I mean, I graduated from here and I lived here, but I believe if there's any change of thinking there is a responsibility for the rich and the powerful to lead some of it. And you have a democracy, you're not afraid to speak. So often when I work with the garbage recyclers in Cairo, I feel they're much more dynamic than, and that it's not a democracy and there's no money or power, but, uh, and that's what keeps me um, respecting them and working with them. Yeah, I just wanted to say that here in New York State, what we're doing is um, 
There's a bill in the state legislature that's being uh, introduced by Senator Bill Perkins, who is a Harlem state senator, and it's a Safe uh, Chemicals for Kids Act, and it would um, list, it would be a comprehensive chemical reform bill that would um, develop a list of 10 priority chemicals that need to be banned so that we can develop safer alternatives. And certainly BPA, PPDEs, and other kinds of flame retardants, and other kinds of plasticizers that are in kids' toys and shower curtains and are really ubiquitous uh, would come under this legislation. There's also federal legislation around TSCA reform um, which is uh, heading, uh, heading to uh, Congress as well. And the EPA Administrator, Lisa Jackson, um, is very, very serious about uh, beginning to regulate chemicals here in this country. Because many of these are endocrine disruptors and have serious implications for reproductive health for both women and for, for men. I guess this is for Dr. Kimmel again, but I would like to hear from all of you, of course. Uh, I am interested in, um, I guess, in international development. And I recently went to Nicaragua, and I um, did some, you know, work in mountainous communities and um, observing how water turbines, um, you know, both give them give these communities energy as well as bring them water, especially to some villages which have ha haven't had um, rainfall for two years due to maybe climate change and whatever else. Um, and I, I really, uh, your point about kind of reconfiguring our perception of what of how good like developed world you know the developed world is versus the underdeveloped really struck me because I kind of went there being like okay I'm gonna learn how to like put in a solar panel or how these systems work and you know help these people but I, I I'm really kind of stuck with this question like am I real how much am I gonna be helping them and how much am I gonna be hindering them or making their lives like more complicated by like a lot of these 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 families would be they're in their tin in houses, but then they have a TV in which they're seeing whatever, you know, things from faraway lands, which we all see now, but I question even how much, you know, like that really, in terms of quality of life, you know, uh, helps us. Um, I mean, so, so I guess many cultural and kind of societal things that could be negative, um, but it still ultimately led me, led me to the question that, you know, maybe um, if, if these energy sources are really, you know, they are sustainable or more uh, uh, appropriate for the land, that the developing countries um, or underdeveloped countries could kind of be a model for to, to redevelop the you know the U.S. and, and other kind of advanced advanced you know countries and how how hopefully it would be you know and, and I guess just your thoughts on that. This is a question for the whole panel. Um, during the whole conversation, I was hearing a lot of you use a lot of I and we and you and us. And I was wondering about identity and each of your different personal relationships to the communities with which you work. They clearly influence and drive your struggle. Um, basically, I wanted to know how you felt about the potential and possibility of collaboration between movements. Do you see identi the identity politics as possibly fragmenting um, a more global struggle? Do you think that it's possible to have collaboration while retaining and the diversity and also valuing it. And um, yeah, I would just like to hear your general thoughts on uh, the place of identity in these struggles. Hello, uh, thank you very much for the talks. I'm learning a lot. Uh, I wanted to turn back the question you raised uh, to everybody because this is an issue I've been wondering about. Um, 
the way we value technology and uh, whether we should have a, a standard for how much we invest in technology. So uh, I would like to hear from all of you what your thoughts are on uh, the way the West seems to approach technology uh, and your experiences working with people in the South, how they uh, view it. And if you had to make a proposal, um, uh, how would you uh, approach uh, giving a guideline for uh, viewing and using technology? Well, I'll start on collaboration. Um, nothing is achieved without collaboration. Um, so when I talk about I, I talk about working with hundreds of grassroots groups um, that are multi-ethnic, multi-racial around the country, as well as in, in the global south through some of the UN sustainable development um, meetings. When, uh, for instance, we're working, the environmental justice community is now working with reproductive rights groups around endocrine disruptors and looking at those kinds of issues, that the impact of chemicals on, on fertility and on birth outcomes. And so we are trying to develop those collaborations. We work with mainstream environmental groups because we have to, because they are, um, are the ones with um, the clout to really advance public policy on environment. So we work with them and we try to um, inject our perspective around low-income communities, communities of color, and those that are underrepresented in this country, try to inject that voice and those concerns into that debate. We work here uh, with housing groups around lead poisoning and other kinds of indoor air quality concerns. So we've really all got to collaborate if we're really going to be united and have a strong voice for safe, sustainable communities. And then the, just in terms of technology, technology is about innovation. And you can't put a, I think a dollar sign or a guideline um, on, on innovation, um, certainly, uh, a lot of the green jobs money and climate change money should go to uh, green jobs and green sector. Um, and we are investing more in pollution prevention techniques and uh, what, what's called green chemistry. Um, a lot of companies would like more investment in geoengineering. And from all of the seminars that I've been to around geoengineering, um, most scientists, most scientists do not think that is the way to go, that we should be engineering our global commons environment um, in ways that we have no idea what will happen. Right over in New Jersey, there is a proposal to uh, do some carbon sequestration and try to bury it in the ocean. We have no idea what that is going to do. We already know the global warming and the fact that um, you know, the ocean heats up by a certain degrees is creating catastrophic events. So we have no idea what sequestering carbon uh, in the ground or in the ocean will do. So uh, I, I'm, I'm not really a technology person, but it is about innovation and it is about um, market-based solutions and it's about um, us really investing in research and development um, that can be scientifically peer-reviewed and that we can have some consensus around. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, just uh, to the comment about, um, you know, collaborations 
I, you know, what, what I see happening an awful lot, and I'm, you know, I think this is uh, is actually critical, is um, is the way issues sort of tend to. Um, you know, ripple into other issues, you know, whether it's the environment into reproductive uh, uh, freedom. You know, we, we see, you know, people, you know, who work in, um, in, in low-income communities, you know, there are multiple issues that affect people. It's bad housing, it's the bad living conditions in the housing, it's, you know, toxic pollutants that are in the air. Um, and it's also, you know, other health issues, which, you know, are sort of directed um, by seemingly other systems, for example, the education system. No Child Left Behind and its prodigy, uh, or its progeny, you know, whatever that, you know, turns out to be under the Obama administration, has basically taken physical education out of the public schools. There is no time in the school day for kids to exercise. So when you talk about you know, you know what are the what are the chronic, really, you know, you know, terrifying conditions that are occurring in you know the place where I work, the Bronx, obesity. You know, obesity is a and, and obesity is a function of you know you know lack of nutritious food and the availability of you know fresh, you know, produce, which you know is ubiquitous in in poor communities across the country but it's also about a really you know seriously flawed education policy which basically is saying you know there's nothing more important than those test scores a kid doesn't live you know if a kid sort of grows up uh, you know type 2 diabetic you know by the time he's 15 you're talking about a you know an average life expectancy of uh, maybe 50 years so you know what difference does that test score make if you know if that's the if that's the lifespan, so these things are very deeply connected. You know all of these issues. Grassroots communities are able to do things for themselves on their own. If you want to help, there are many ways that you can help. But I'm not sure it's always by bringing them what you know. I think a better way because we've seen that in the international development field, it's become such a racket, and it's become an ugly scene. I'm sorry because. The people who come in to help us are not humble enough to listen to what we know. And we know a few things. Uh, so in the movement, uh, where the I and the we and who's, uh, we're now part of a global movement which met in Bogota three years ago and we call, we call ourselves the Global Recyclers Movement. Uh, and it's agreed that when we get together in these meetings, anybody that's not a recycler has to keep their mouth shut and sit in the back. <laughs> because what do we know about feeling plastic or touching or selling it? Nothing. But we do know about how to get the lawyers to fill out the forms and help them organize and go to court, da, da, da. So we're called upon only when they need us. And now we found a nexus where the recyclers of the world have come together with the slum dwellers of the world. But it all began a long time ago. It takes forever. So the recyclers have been at it for 30 years, the slum dwellers for 40. But we now have global chapters of these. And we come together because recyclers live in slums. So can you imagine when the two forces come together at a global platform and now demand that the World Bank and the executive board of the Clean Development Mechanism come to us and listen to us? We're not there yet where they're really listening, but we're demanding at least. Huh? Uh, but I just want to say that there is an awful lot that you can do, and that is on 
re in, in a place like this school, redefining what it is that we want to learn from us and what it is that we can teach you and you teach us. Uh, and all of us coming together in an open dialogue where there is no arrogance of technology or money or power. The North has made a mess of the financial crisis as shown. So why not be humble for once and show that there is corruption in the North, just like the South, that there is um, oppression of the poor, that there are marginalized communities in the north. All of this has to come up. You guys are no better than we are. But you have to start saying it so that there's a certain sisterhood of men here and together uh, address these forces that are trying to make the world not a very good place to be. Um, I'll try to respond a little bit more. I, I want to. I, I uh, was thinking about this, uh, I think it's called the, what's it called, the World Happiness Index? Yes. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah? yeah? Yeah. And you all know that. But I think that that's a really important construct because GDP <laughs> does not equate to quality of life, you know, and how much you make, you know. So I think that there's a, a paradigm shift that is required and, and we need to, uh, to push that at a lot of different levels. You know, I'm someone that believes that change is created at, at many levels, and that's why you need all that cooperation and collaboration between movements. I don't have the patience to go to Washington, you know, I, nor to most UN meetings, but some people do. Hats off to them, you know. On the, on the other side, you know, working in a community is a different set of skills. Um, and so there's a place for everyone in it, uh, in, in these struggles. I am, um, to me, I mean, I think it's interesting, I don't want to spend a lot more time on it, but the idea of what is identity politics, everybody comes from someplace, you know, and it is really, really important to not pretend that, because, you know, in our communities, our indigenous communities, a lot of times people say, well, why don't you guys just get over that? Like, this is what I hear, you know, in these little redneck towns, why don't you guys just get over what happened? I'm like, because uh, I'm still here, I like to speak my language, I like to have my own ceremonies, and I don't want to be like you, <laughs> you know? I mean, just to say, you know, you could, I respect you however you are, but I want to be me, you know? And so it's really, really important to value that diversity and what that brings into, into movements, and not to see it as a separation, to see it as the greatness of, of the creation, you know, to me. That's what that is, and then the strengths and, and, and within that. Um, in terms of that, you know, tribal, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to address the, you know, Egyptian government, but what I would, you know, what I would say is, is that I'm a firm believer in uh, self-determination of people. And I think that, um, you know, I think that over time, we relinquished a lot of power and we became consumers, you know, because today 70% of the U.S. economy is based on consumption. And so we, people don't know how to grow food anymore. And your grandparents grew food. Most of them did. You know, um, and, and that set of choices that occurred or programming or whatever you want to call it by the mass media and the war economy, uh, you know, created a situation where uh, we believe that, that government and corporations should take care of us, you know, and that they're going to provide for us. And in that process, we relinquished a lot of control and became um, less responsible. That'd be my argument. So I'm a proponent of relocalization. Uh, because I believe that that uh, inherently in whether it is energy and food systems, 
makes you a better person, um, but also it, it takes control from Exxon and Monsanto. Mm -hmm. And someone's got to take control back, and the more that you have local, you know, the less that you are reliant. And then in terms of our governments, I mean, it is a form of colonialism. IRA governments is what they're called, Indian Reorganization Act governments, and their, their relations are primarily with the federal government. And so you have a center periphery set of relations like other colonial relations. No accountability necessarily at the local level. And um, you know, so it is similar structurally. You know, not to say uh, condemnation. You're working with what you got, you know. But you know, just in uh, you know closing, I really you know I just I am someone that believes that uh, you know change is made by our hands and our minds. You know that's how it is, and knowing what is appropriate in technology because it fits in a place appropriate in policy. You know, um, it is different. There's not one cookie stamp that is the same. That's what the diversity is, but. Uh, the beauty of the communities is enhanced by the appropriateness of both the policy, the technology, you know, and the choices, you know. Okay. <laughs>